We're going to jump in. Thanks for praying. I, I love praying with you guys in that way. It's beautiful. Um, my, my voice went out on me last Wednesday, and I'm recovering, so if I sound like I'm a 70-year-old woman who's been smoking for 60 years, it's because, <laughs> it's because I lost my voice. So um, anyways, um, okay, uh, David Brooks is a New York Times op-ed columnist. He wrote a book called Two Mountains. Talked about this once before, uh, but in this book, he talks about the, our life being like two mountains. Um, the first mountain is a means to the second mountain. So the first mountain is what society tells us to go for. This phrase he uses is called the resume virtues. These are kind of the things that we do when we're around people and we say, you know, who are you? And we kind of flex with the things that we do or the, the strengths that we have or the things that we've accomplished or what our resume might say about us. It's, it's about you. It's figuring out, you know, in some ways the good side is figuring out who you are and what God's called you to. Uh, and so there's an element of that. This is that's kind of a part of the progress of growing as a human. Um, but at the end of the day, it's an attempt to kind of define yourself, to kind of prove yourself to the world. It's about me. It's about my freedom. The first mountain, again, was always meant to be a means to get to the second mountain. But see, if our freedom and our primary pursuit is about us, about our freedom, um, then what happens is that our freedom ends up becoming our own demise. Os Guinness says this about freedom. He says, for at the heart of freedom lies a great paradox. The greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. And so if our freedom becomes the end game. It actually becomes our demise. And so the first mountain is designed to help us figure out who we are. But if we end there and we live our whole lives living for ourselves, it actually is the very opposite of the way God designed us to be. And so David Brooks, he, he then talks about the second mountain. And in the second mountain, he talks about what he would call eulogy virtues. These aren't the things that you say about yourself. These are the things that people say about you once you pass. This is the conversation that people have at your funeral. And oftentimes, what's said about your funeral has nothing to do with your resume. It's much different than that. The second mountain is about giving your life away. See, we get the through the first mountain, and hopefully as we're maturing, we begin to seek to give our life away. The second mountain is about generosity. The second mountain is about self-sacrifice. It's founded upon commitments. And I know commitments are like, not what we're supposed to do as a society anymore. We're not supposed to commit to anything, which isn't true, but that's what we're told. But in this second mountain, we're committed to our family and our marriage. If you're married and if you have family, you're committed to your faith. You're committed to your community. You're committed to your calling. And, and as we commit to these things, we give ourselves away to these areas of life. It gets you out of yourself and gets you into this place of giving your life away. The Atlantic summarized this book with these cliff notes by saying, David Brooks argues that life on the first mountain, the mountain of personal goals, worldly success, career, ambitions, and traveling in the right circle, social circles is transitory and ultimately unsatisfying. Eventually, though, if you're fortunate, you find yourself on the second mountain, one characterized by other-centeredness and self-giving. So David Brooks was informed, this isn't a new thought, he was informed by Jesus, to follow Jesus, he's informed by Jesus. And so all of the things that he's saying about the first mountain and the second mountain is, is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. That as we grow in following Jesus, the design is how do we, like our Savior, give ourselves away? More blessed to give 
and to receive. See, this conviction is, is kind of baked into the kingdom of Jesus. And it's here that we touch shalom, and it's here that we touch purpose, and it's here that we touch our cultural mandate to make this world better by giving ourselves away. You know, our world isn't moving to the second mountain, though. It isn't moving to a life of generosity. On the contrary, according to the Giving Institute, Americans give 2.1% of their disposable income to charity. So in reality, like in our attempt to grow in freedom is not leading to us giving our lives away. In our attempt to grow in freedom and fighting for freedom at all costs, we're actually becoming more self-absorbed and not less. So is there a practice that guides our wallet to maintain contentment and buck against treasuring stuff? The answer is yes. There's a twofold set of practices that Jesus gives to us. Generosity and simplicity. And I want to consider those with you this morning. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about faith, work, and generosity. We talked about the value of work and how important work is to make this world better. It's significant. Then we spent some time talking about what money is and what money isn't, that it's not bad, it's simply a tool, but our hearts can turn it into a treasure. Last week, we talked about contentment. It's a learned practice that guides our hearts. So we learn a lot about what Jesus thinks about generosity. And I don't want to begin in the New Testament. I want to begin in the Old Testament because I think it informs our broader view of generosity. In the Old Testament, God instilled a practice into the Torah, into the five books books of the Bible, to guide the people of God, to exemplify the heart of God, which is generosity. And that that practice was tithing. Tithing was in in the ethos of what it meant to be a part of the people of God. And I'm not going to, we're going to talk about something even more grandiose than tithing. So this isn't going towards a tithing conversation. It's bigger than that. But in the Old Testament, and specifically Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's an invitation of the people of God to support the priest and the Levite by giving 10% of everything they had. So for them, that would be, you know, wheat and produce and flocks and herds to give 10% of that to the Levites. And on top of that, they were invited to give towards festivals and they were invited to give towards the poor. And that made up the framework of what they gave. We're a democracy very different than them being a theocracy, so there are some differences there. But for them, they were charged to give up to 30% of of what they had to God, to the poor, and to festivals. So God desired his people to be generous and to care for each other. Again, we have taxes and things that make us different in some ways than them to a degree. But this is a part of the law that was designed to posture people to be a generous people. So the tithing principle was designed to lead people to become a generous people. That was the heart. The heart was generosity. And sadly, what was produced was very different than what the design of the practice was. Jesus condemns the religious leaders who were leading the Jewish community in the first century. He condemned them in Matthew 23. They were very exact in their tithe. They were not hitting the heart, the why, behind the tithe. And he says this in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. A lot happening there. 
calls them hypocrites. That's not nice of Jesus. Well, he was being honest. And so they were hypocrites. And, and he says, he, he uses satire here. It's, you, you are so exact. You can imagine some of the smallest herbs there are. These, these, Levi, these, these um, Pharisees and scribes are, are cutting up a tenth of their herbs and setting it aside to make sure they're exactly giving away 10%. That's what a tithe is, exactly giving away 10%. And yet they neglected the very reason for why they're supposed to tithe, which was justice and mercy and faithfulness, these weightier matters. He says, don't neglect the former because you haven't hit the, the latter. You want both. You want the posture of of abiding by the practice to lead you into this place of justice and mercy and faithfulness and a heart of generosity. See, tithing was a practice built into the people of God to create a value of generosity, to keep their hearts from clinging to the tool, which is money. So the question is, as we move over to the New Testament, what did Jesus have to say about this? Did he continue this theme of tithing? And I would go to the point of saying this. What we learn as we read the pages of the New Testament is that the early Christians carried the posture of generosity. Tithing was a practice, but it wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't tithing. The goal was radical generosity, which is far different than maybe what we might think. Their goal was much more inspiring than checking a box off and giving 10%. Their heart posture was this place of giving and giving generously. Transparently, we, we can succumb to the temptation to see our giving as like a cost of admission to the church. Like you're on a movie. Like I gotta, I gotta, if I'm gonna watch this movie, I, I gotta pay the price. And so I kind of put the dollars in and now I can go watch the movie. And so in the same way with the church, like I want community and I want gospel-centeredness and I want some of these things that the church provides, but I gotta kind of give this cost of admission to to do that, it's like a painful automatic withdrawal. But man, the early church believed that the end goal of life was the second mountain. The end goal of life was how do I give my life away in the same way that Jesus gave his life away. So what I want to do this morning is I want to survey some of the New Testament, some of the early church, and just consider what, what they were doing, how they were operating in a way that was pretty inspiring to us, Acts and challenging. Acts 2 44 is where I'm going to begin context. Luke, the writer of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, uh, he, he ends the, the Gospel of Luke by telling us that Jesus had died, he was buried, he rose, three days later he ascended, he interacted with people. We enter the, the Acts um, of the apostles, and, and we see that he spends multiple weeks with his disciples, and he ascends into heaven, and he pours out his spirit. Beginning of Acts 2, we see that the spirit is pouring out in, in very powerful ways, and then we get kind of what's happening in the early church. We read this, Acts 2, 44 and 45. It says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, they, as any had need. And day by day, oh, I'm not supposed to go that far. That's where we're ending. Okay, good. So, um, so what we see in this moment is that they had a lot in common. 
and they were giving those things to one another. This sounds a lot like socialism, and it's very easy to go there in our mind, but that's not what's happening here. This isn't about policy. This is about a community that's covenantally bound together and doing whatever it could to care for one another. This is a radical picture of Jesus in real time in the lives of real people. We have much to learn. I have much to learn about this posture here. This wasn't a law. This was an overflow. This is about beginning so impacted with the gospel of Jesus that it led them from into this posture of, of giving away and living with a place of generosity. See, followers of Jesus are a generous people. And we move over to Acts chapter 4, and we read this, starting in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that, had, that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You're going to see a theme of grace as we move through these texts. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a, a Levite, a native, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, we see this theme of grace, that when grace gets into our bones, it leads us to be generous, naturally. And we see that theme throughout these texts. It says they had everything in common, which means this. They believed that nothing that they had was theirs. Their money wasn't theirs. Everything was owned by God, and they were simply responsible to steward what they had been given. A very different thought than the way we approach these kinds of things. But they sold stuff. They kept their hands free from the tool that money was. They didn't cling to it as a treasure, but they, they sold when they felt drawn to sell, to create more margin, to be able to give in radically generous ways. And we meet Barnabas, and he sold a field that belonged to him, and, and he gave it to the church, and he said, use it as you wish for the sake of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom, Use it as you wish. It's a very beautiful, profound picture. We see this throughout the early church. We see this, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but how, uh, how the Caesar of the first and second century wrote about, was, uh, had conversations about the early church and how generous they were. We hear about a church father named Clement of Alexandria, and he, he really challenged his people to live lean and to live simply so that they could be more generous this is a beautiful picture that was taking place. I'm not saying this should be our standard, but what I am saying is, I'm also not saying the large income is a problem, but I am saying that Clement and these guys really understood that our hearts can cling to money as a treasure and cling to stuff, and they chose to live simply with generosity because they believed that it protected their hearts. So we flip over to Acts 5, and Luke's doing this on purpose. We literally just finished the last few verses of Acts 4 of Barnabas being incredibly generous, giving of his money away to the church. And the next verse says this, but a man named Ananias 
his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. <clears throat> and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell to the ground at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's pretty intense. It's kind of stuff you read in the Old Testament, right? Like, it's like crazy to think that, that God is not different than the God of the Old Testament. He's as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New, and he's as fearful as he is in the Old as he is in the New. But what we read here is, they held back. They wanted it to look like they were more generous than they actually were. And what Luke is trying to emphasize is that generosity mattered a great deal to the early church. I mean, imagine, they were just like us, temptation just like us, wanting to hoard just like us, questioning if God's going to provide just like us. Like, they're no different. So you can imagine in the early church, you're sitting next to Barnabas, you see him sell his field, and you're like, Dagon, I don't want to sell my field. And if I do, I don't want to give all the proceeds, but I feel pressure to be like Barnabas, so I'm going to make it look like I've given like Barnabas has given. And that's a, I mean, that's a virus that can destroy the church. And God so cared and loved his church to confront that temptation in a way that was pretty staggering. See, a couple wanted to appear generous in public, but kept back a portion for themselves. And See, there's a version of generosity that is a, a gateway to the expansion of the kingdom. There's a version of generosity that is a, a gateway to allow our funds to lead towards kingdom work, to lead towards church planning, to lead towards beautiful things. And there is a pseudo version of generosity that becomes a virus in the church, hoarding but making it look like we don't, giving the minimum by checking off a box. See, it's a virus if we confess Hear this, if we confess we serve a generous God and yet we don't seek to become generous ourselves, it become a virus for us. If we believe willingly and freely, allowing God to pour out his lavish, rich grace and mercy upon us. We celebrate it when we gather. You've been ridiculously generous to us. How could you love us the way you do? Yet we receive it and we give thanks. And that's the dead end. We don't extend it by being generous to the world. It becomes a casualty for us. And that's the dagger for me, man. I feel this just as much as you guys do. 
I read this, I'm like, Lord, let this be a scan of my soul. Where am I off? Where I celebrate your grace, where I celebrate your generosity. Man, I don't want to give it. I'd much rather receive it than, than give it. Man, this generosity is a soul scan of, of what we treasure. It's a litmus test for us. Shows what we care about. Generosity with the heart of the early church. See, where there is no where there is no generosity, there is no understanding of the gospel. Where there is no generosity, there is no understanding of the gospel because the gospel compels us to be generous with our lives. And I definitely want to grow there. And I would just sidebar because I don't want an ounce of shame to land on us because that's not going to motivate. The gospel does. What I would say for some of you, I don't know who gives what, and I feel great about it. So you might be our highest giver in here, and you might have never given. You've been coming here for 10 years. Regardless, I don't know, and I feel great about it. So what I would say for some of you, you might be like, Dagum, I've been hoarding, and I feel like God's inspiring me to become more generous. I would say, just take a step. Whatever that looks like for you, my invitation for you would be to take a step. Whatever that is, you don't need to start from zero to 10%. You might not be able to do that. You might have to choose to live more simply before you get to 10%. And again, that's not even the point. The point is to have a life of generosity. But I, I don't want shame to fall on you. I want you to know that we're just invited to take steps. And that's the beauty of following Jesus together. See, generosity becomes the discipline that tethers us to our true north. And here's the propaganda. The propaganda of the first mountain is to save your life, to build your self-expression at all cost, to grow your wealth at all cost, and it's enslaving. So here's this. It's an interesting study that came up through Princeton University. They, they surveyed almost half a million people, 450,000 people in this survey, and they concluded that your overall well-being rises with your income but there's a cap to that well-being. After that, you either plateau or worse, you decline. So what we're fed, the propaganda we're fed, is keep getting more and you'll find yourself more happy. And it's not true. The study provided the opposite. The leading researcher said this, no matter where you live, your emotional well-being is as good as it's going to get at $75,000. And money's not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's like you hit some sort of ceiling and you can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more money. It's challenging. For some of us, we, we see that we're a long ways to go to $75,000. And some of us, that's been in our rearview mirror for a long time. But nonetheless, it shows the limitations of what money can and can't do for us. It's very limited. A little bit more won't scratch the itch of our soul. On the contrary, the wisest man who has ever lived, I repeat, the wisest man who has ever lived, who's not just a good teacher, he's brilliant, the smartest man to ever live, in his, some of his most brilliant statements says this, you cannot serve both God and money. The most brilliant man who ever lived said, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Friends, we cannot serve God 
and money. We cannot serve God and the system. We cannot live in the freedom way that Jesus invites us into and be sucked into overconsumption that our society pulls us into. So as we talk about generosity, it's necessary for us to have a sidebar conversation about generosity's sibling, which is simplicity. Because if we keep in the system of more, think about it. If you live your life in the system that, this, that our world provides, of I have to have the newest, greatest, I have to continually have more, it prevents us from being a people of generosity. If we don't say no to some things, we won't have margin to say yes to generosity. We have to get to the point of saying no to some things and the place of simplicity so that we have the margin so that we can say yes to being generous. See, simplicity fuels generosity. If we live in the overconsumption of our day, we will be unable to posture our hearts with this place of generosity. Richard Foster defines simplicity by saying this, simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle. See, simplicity empowers generosity. Simplicity or minimalism, it's not about organizing your stuff. I know that some of you guys like Marie Kondo and all the things that she's done for simplifying your wardrobe or whatever. That's not what I'm referencing here. It's not about style. It's a posture of saying, I can live with less. I don't need everything. I don't need most things. I can say no to some things so that I can say yes to a posture of generosity. John Stott, I said this quote last week, and I think it's relevant for today too. He says, contentment is the secret of inward peace. It remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Life, in fact, is a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing, but enough. We've got enough. Simplicity says if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So is there a practice that guides our wallet to maintain contentment and buck against treasuring stuff? Yes, twofold, generosity and simplicity. As we close, I, I want to consider a few principles of generosity I think are relevant to us and um, we'll find those in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We hear about this church in Macedonia that was not well off, a very lean community that chose to be incredibly generous with the little bit that they had. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we're going to find three principles that I want to consider. The first is through 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. We go to verse Eight, it says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you, 
know the grace, again, that word grace, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. First thing we see about generosity principle here is that generosity is designed to be sacrificial. This church in Macedonia didn't have much, and with the little they had, chose to sacrifice once that they had to care for others. It's powerful. I was talking to somebody after the first gathering, and, and they were just mentioning how we have a partnership with Cuba. And in our partnership with Cuba, we're, we're learning a lot about discipleship. We're learning a lot about generosity. This lean community who doesn't have much, and in their lack, they're still ridiculously generous. It's powerful. I want to learn from our Cuban brothers and sisters as we grow in our relationship with church planning with them down there. The grace that the Macedonians experienced compelled them to generosity. Something viral was happening in the church. They embraced simplicity and they leaned into generosity. Then we get to verse 13 of chapter 8, which says this. For I do not mean that others should be eased, and you be burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so, the, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We see that within this, there's this reminder, this quote is from Exodus of, of the people taking the manna that God provided. And so what is being implied here is that when we know that our stuff is not our stuff, when we know that our money is actually designed to be stewarded by, God, by us for the purposes of honoring God, it allows us to approach generosity, and which leads to the second point. Generosity reflects what we trust. It exposes what we trust. And if we feel like we need to hoard or cling to all the treasures we have, it prevents us from that, but it exposes a scan that helps us know what we trust. And it's challenging for us. I know it is. Because we, we feel, as we look at this, and we're looking like serving one another in this way, being generous, like it's, it bucks against what we've been taught like this. It's challenging because, because, because of these kind of statements. Like, but I worked for this. Or I earned this. Or this is my money. Or they're not giving, why do I have to? Have you ever felt that? Like those challenges within you that, that kind of communicate, like I work for this, this is my money, this is my stuff. But the gospel slowly loosens our grip that all that I have is his. And generosity helps us posture our hearts and to trust God more and more. Which leads to the last principle that we see here in these two chapters 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6, it says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he, decide, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace, again grace, abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So he says, you reap what you sow. 
And God's inviting you not to just have this certain weight, but to, from a cheerful heart, give. I'll tell you this, that the most people that I know that have the freest hearts are the people that year after year after year have chosen to grow in generosity. And the people that are the most annoying to be around are the people that have hoarded their lives for too long and you just don't want to be around them. There's something about sowing into this place of not just giving, but cheerful giving that we're invited into. With giving, it's going to be painful. You can think about all the things you could be giving your money towards. I could pay off that debt quicker. I could save faster. I could take this additional trip. I could buy this thing or that thing. I, it's so easy to go that direction. But the invitation, it's not that those things are bad at all. Again, they're neutral. But it's about the motive of our heart. If we think, if I had that, I would be happy. And we got to confront that. Say, it's not true. And recognize that God's inviting us into something better. It doesn't mean that we can't have those things at all. But at the end of the day, we'll reap what we sow. So friends, we have an opportunity to get to the second mountain in life, to grow in maturity, and to get to the second mountain and actually not just stay at the first mountain. We're invited to exemplify our Savior and his generosity for us. And we're invited to buck against the trend of our day with renewed minds and know that there's a delusion to riches. So friends, I charge you that you have permission to go against the grain whatever that looks like for you. You have permission to be generous and as generous as you want. No one can take away your generosity. No one can steal it. No one can break into it. No one can take it. The reality is the cost of discipleship is hard. Following Jesus is not easy. The talk of generosity is is a challenge for us, but I would also say this, repeating Dallas Willard, that the cost of non-discipleship is even higher the effects it can have on your life and your heart. So what's next for you is I would challenge you to evaluate your spending. I would, evaluate, I would encourage you to maintain a budget. I would encourage you to not respond to the impulses that you have. And I would encourage you to start somewhere. If you found that, man, all of your adult life, you've never been generous, then start. Start somewhere and take steps of growth in that end. If you've found yourself to be ridiculously generous. Continue to pray and see what God has for you. I know we're all across the spectrum on that, but the goal is to start somewhere. Again, like I said all along, this is not designed to be a, a giving initiative. I'm not gonna send out, give out cards and you're gonna fill out how much you're gonna give over the next 36 months. That's not where we're going here. If you do wanna take a step, you can go to our URL, sojournaline.org slash giving. If that's something that you wanna do, you're welcome to do that. But friends, we're inji- invited to be distinct in a world of conception, in a world that stays on the first mountain. We're invited to give our lives away as Jesus so generously did for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know for some of us, Conversation around money can be triggering, can be challenging. And I ask that the, the kind reminder of Jesus, fear not, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I pray that that would inspire us and 
renew us and draw our hearts to trust you more. Lord, for some of us, for all of us, I pray that you would lead us. If there's areas in our lives where we should sell things or simplify in certain ways, Lord, I pray you give us wisdom. I pray you allow cheerfulness to be the drive. Lord, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus, your kindness and your rich mercy. I pray that that would be the motivation that we have, that we would love because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.